Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. I caught up with my guest today, Michelle Milford Morse, on International Women's Day and as the war in Ukraine entered its second week. Michelle Milford Morse is the United Nations Foundation's Vice President for Girls and Women's Strategy. I wanted to speak with her to both better understand gender dynamics in armed conflict more generally and how these dynamics are playing out today in Ukraine. Also, we spoke about a week before the Commission on the Status of Women, CSW, kicked off at United Nations headquarters in New York. Other than the opening of the UN General Assembly every September, the Commission on the Status of Women is the largest annual gathering at the UN, and I was keen to learn from Michelle Milford Morse what to expect from this meeting and how, if at all, the war in Ukraine will impact CSW this year. I always appreciate speaking with Michelle Milford Morse. We kick off discussing gender dynamics and conflict and Ukraine before transitioning to a conversation about CSW. As always, if you have questions for me, comments, or suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover, please do feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or using the contact button on globaldispatches.org. And now here is my conversation with Michelle Milford Morse of the United Nations Foundation. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Conflict is gendered. Uh, Men are largely expected to take up arms and defend their country or to be part of an invasion force. Women are largely expected to flee from conflict and to take children and the elderly and vulnerable with them. And both are very, very dangerous, but not in the same ways. For women, rates of domestic violence, early enforced child marriage, human trafficking, these things spike during times of conflict. Maternal mortality um, also rises. Just you know, two years ago, the UN verified 2,500 cases of conflict-related sexual violence in 18 countries committed mostly against girls and women. So flight comes with additional risks and trauma, too. There's an estimated you know, one in five female refugees living in humanitarian settings that have experienced sexual violence and its consequences, and along with that, trauma, stigma, poverty, and unwanted pregnancy too. And that's one in five female refugees. And consider that more than half of the planet's 80 million displaced people are women and children. So the the dangers are overwhelming. And we know that because our, our UN colleagues are on the ground responding to this and, um, and collecting the data about it. 
What do we know specifically about maternal health and conflict? Well, what happens with maternal health is that regular health services are interrupted, which means that women can't seek both the kind of prenatal and labor and delivery care um, that you would expect to have uh, not during a conflict. And let's just situate that in the larger conflict context, you know, maternal mortality is still a global problem all over the world. Uh, Childbirth is not uh, the safe endeavor that we want it to be for far too many women. But conflict throws an additional set of challenges in the mix. And I'm sure you've all seen some of the the photos and videos and the headlines about women in Ukraine right now um, giving birth in in subway stations. Um, It is truly horrifying. Is there like a, a link, uh, like a, a definitive, like empirically proven link between political violence and domestic gender-based violence? There is. There is. I am really glad to see that increasingly that link is being made. To be specific, um, sexism is strategic for the world's autocrats. The best way to torpedo democracy is to make sure that women aren't included in it, um, to make sure that pluralism doesn't thrive, to make sure that women are not at the negotiating table. Um, these things are these things are definitely linked. And it, it, it may seem like the broader point is not the point we need to be making now that we are seeing these horrifying images and stories coming out of Ukraine. But I think it is the right time to make that point. And Mark, I'd, I'd be kind of delighted to talk a little bit about what we're seeing specifically in Ukraine and how it links to this broader context of women, peace and security. Yeah, I, I mean, that that's where I was going. You know, we are now, as I said, two weeks into the conflict in Ukraine. What are you seeing in terms of its impact on gender equality any, and more broadly, uh, how this conflict is uniquely impacting women? Well, it's interesting, you know, because the quality, I think, and the amount of information coming out of Ukraine is different than what we've seen previously. We're seeing a range of both expected and unexpected gender roles. I mean, as I noted, you're seeing a video of women fleeing with children, but you're also seeing them at the front lines and sometimes with their partners. And then we've seen fathers taking their kids to safety and then going back to defend their country. This, This highlights, I think, a couple of things for me. First, you know, our gender norms are not fixed. All this stuff about who takes care of children and who runs companies, we made all that up. We can knock it down. This stuff is not fixed. But second, it matters a lot who gets to make the decisions. Men have largely absorbed the responsibility of waging war and the privilege of negotiating, keeping, and building peace. Men are usually the authors of war. Women's are usually the weapons of war and its social and economic casualties. And I bring this up because I don't want us to talk about girls and women only as the vulnerable subjects of war, but also as the agents of change that we need. Because peace and security is women's work too. And probably our listeners you know, might remember that landmark year, uh, the year 2000, when the Security Council passed the Security Resolution uh, 1325 on Women, Peace, and Security and set new markers for the degree to which women would be engaged in peace building, peacekeeping, um, and in general peace and security work. But Mark, we have a long way to go. I mean, I went and looked for some data yesterday and I found that in 2020, 
women represented only 23% of delegations in UN-supported peace processes. Um, So we have a long way to go, but the point is we need women to take their rightful place at the negotiating table um, so we have different outcomes and different voices at that table. Um, Specifically to to the conflict in Ukraine, you know, are there any sort of anecdotes you've heard uh, or stories you could share that are like illustrative of um, like gender dynamics at play in in this conflict? You mentioned earlier um, women being on the front line. I I interviewed a a journalist a couple of weeks ago who was at the Polish border and was, you know, accompanying a family fleeing the man the men were forced to stay behind. The women were, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the children were, were allowed to flee as refugees. Um, are, are there any sort of anecdotes or stories like that that have sort of resonated with you? A, a couple, Mark. Um, yesterday, I saw some uh, footage of a man and woman getting married at the front lines. And I just thought, First of all, the resilience of that was astounding to me. But you know, uh, getting married is 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 kind of uh, hope uh, manifest in a tradition. And I thought I thought that was so interesting to to see that and so so unexpected. Um, and then at the same time, I think like everybody, I've been watching uh, videos and reading stories about the border and about women making, trying to make a decision in this, in this moment in time, do I hand my child off to a stranger at this border and go back and fight for my country? Or do I try to cross this border with my child and take care of my child? I just think we've put people in the most impossible situation. Um, But I do think it's just interesting that when you get a closer look and you're able to observe how people are responding to this crisis that you see that gender doesn't show up always in the same way for all people. And, and it, and it shouldn't actually. Uh, So it seems, you know, as we are entering sort of week two of this conflict, that a a tactic at, at least used by the Russian forces will be to lay siege to, to cities uh, and also uh, to bomb civilian infrastructure, including, as we've seen, as the World Health Organization ha- has reported, medical uh, infrastructure. Um, you know, we've seen this tactics before, most recently in, in Syria, laying siege to, to a civilian population. You know, obviously, this will cause hardship and deprivation to everyone uh, under siege. You know, is there something unique that women may experience during this time as opposed to men? Well, we we talked a little bit about um, the maternal mortality um, and how a situation that is not ideal in many countries in the world crumbles uh, further during conflict. But it's also the point, you know, it's also important to say you know, women globally make up between 70 to 90 percent of our frontline healthcare workers. We know that, and it's been clarified for us dramatically because we are now, you know, in year two of a pandemic. So anytime health infrastructure is affected like that, you know that there are women on the front lines who are serving as nurses, doctors, and midwives, and as other uh, healthcare professionals that are going to be dramatically affected um, by that. At the same time, I mentioned that sexual violence against women spikes 
during uh, times of conflict. I think it's important to highlight that specific um, and egregious violation of human rights. The UN tracks that the uh, the special representative for the use of sexual violence and conflict has warned um, that there are reports of the use of sexual violence happening in Ukraine. And so as difficult as this is to talk about, as difficult as it is to hear, I think it's important that we are aware that rape is used as a weapon of war and women endure um, that horrific violations, uh, violation of their safety and their rights and that is that is a unique way in which conflict can be gendered and particularly traumatic. Um, what can be done to like reverse some of the harmful trends uh, that you described? I mean, other than you know reducing war, the the the, the um, frequency of war, the harm of war. What can be done to you know? Are there some like deliberate steps? Both, you know, belligerents in conflicts, or, or the international community more broadly, can take to reverse some of the, the harmful trends that you discussed uh, at the top of this conversation in terms of the impact of, of conflict and, and war on gender equality. Well, obviously, we want an immediate, total, complete uh, ceasefire. <laughs> I mean, I just um, like everyone. I'm I'm heartbroken. I'm worried. It's um, it's it's just deeply, deeply trying. I'm, I'm aware of the relative comfort from which I get to say these things. And yet um, our human family is suffering terribly um, there. And then frankly, in other conflicts in the world right now um, as well. But, but Mark, I think it goes back to that point of that women don't get to make decisions. They don't get to write the story. Um, the way that, that when war is waged, how it is waged, the weapons that are used against women specifically, women don't get to make the decisions about that. And so right now, if overwhelmingly um, uh, armed conflict is waged by men, men are, the, are both the negotiators for the end of conflict, long-term peace negotiations are decided by men, then we are probably going to keep repeating the same cycle. And that's you know, that's really, that's really a pity because uh, we have some pretty good data, actually, that when women are involved in peacekeeping, that those agreements uh, last longer, they endure longer. Um, and so it's not just that to me, having, making sure that everybody's around the table and gets to make decisions about our future is obviously the right thing to do. But it's also, <laughs> if we want longer peace, then it's um, imperative that we do that. So um, that is the long-term goal, inclusion and belonging for all people. So so on the topic uh, of sitting around a table making a, a decision, I also want to, uh, while I have your time, uh, have you discuss a little bit about the Commission on the Status of Women, which is upcoming at mm-hmm. the United Nations in March. This is after the annual UN General Assembly in September. Uh, the CSW, the Commission on the Status of Women, is is the largest gathering, diplomatic gathering at the United Nations each year. Uh, it was not uh, obviously supposed to be about the war in Ukraine, uh, but I'm interested in getting your perspective, your take on um, both one, so what, how the conflict in Ukraine might impact uh, discussions, if at all, at CSW, and more broadly, what you'll be looking towards at CSW this year. 
Well, I love CSW. It's it's really my favorite time of the year because it's the time of year where governments from all over the world show up in at the UN for two weeks to agree yet again that women are people. It is, you know, technically is the biggest global policymaking body dedicated exclusively to promoting gender equality. Um, and UN Women is the secretariat of CSW. So my heroic colleagues over there are facing a, you know, a fortnight of very little sleep. Um, and, and this two weeks, this supports all aspects of the commission's work. And it's just, it's a really important moment for civil society engagement and for member state negotiation on issues related um, to gender equality. And I, you know, in, in my career, it's also been vexed. I've seen CSW uh, canceled because of blizzards, because of a pandemic. And this year it'll operate under uh, the shadow of war, um, as you say. So this year CSW is also going to take up um, a both critical, urgent, and complicated topic, the topic of, of climate justice and the role that girls and women need to play in adaptation and mitigation and responding to our our planetary crisis. The specter of oil has obviously and rightly been raised in the articles um, and in discussion about uh, the war uh, in Ukraine. And that is because, you know, these, these, um, the, our reliance on oil is related to climate change and our reliance on oil is related to conflict. And so it might be tempting to see these things as separate gender equality, democracy, climate change, peace and security, but in fact, they are all related. And I expect all of those things to be surfaced, debated, and discussed and at length um, for the two weeks of the of the CSW, Mark. Uh, are there any sort of specific outcomes you'll be looking towards at, at CSW? Yeah, I will, for sure. Um, the first thing is that the CSW this year is going to undertake, uh, in addition to the climate justice discussion, it's going to take up this approach to working. CSW, I think, is is the moment during the year that probably benefits the most from vibrant participation of civil society. And so member states and civil society actors are going to take up this question of how civil society engages in the UN. Now, that may sound super technical and even a little bit boring, but I'm here to tell you, deciding who gets to be in the room, who gets to be part of the negotiations, it's critical. It's a form of democracy, and it should be important to anyone who cares about, about equality. The other thing, Mark, is that the CSW produces some agreed conclusions. They start with a zero draft. I think that zero draft initially was about seven pages. The latest version, I think, is 57 pages. And they're going to, the the member states are going to hash out all kinds of things related to gender equality and to climate justice. I am keen to see where they land on this issue of climate justice. One of the reasons why this CSW might be vexed is because uh, member states have not agreed that the that there is a climate crisis they haven't agreed that the climate crisis is related to security and member states have backtracked dramatically in fact on gender equality it was long ago that 189 governments um, agreed to the platform of action in beijing in 1995 it's even been a long time since governments agreed um, on the sustainable development agenda and sdg5 we have seen a rise in in sexism misogyny, uh, nationalist leaders that are that are brazenly, frankly, ba- brazenly patriarchal and misogynistic. And so it is 
with that backdrop that these governments are going to debate two of the more contentious issues of our time, climate change and gender equality. And so, Mark, I'm going to be, to answer your question, I'm going to be watching those negotiations very, very carefully to see where is the world we land, because um, for my money, the future of humanity is well, at stake here. Well, can I ask, like, what are, like, the realms of possibility uh, in terms of, like, where these negotiations land? Like, what are, like, like the range of, of outcomes? I mean, I've been following, you know, the United Nations closely enough for, for many years that, you know, documents <laughs> like the outcome document that, that you described, you know, go through this, like, painful process of, like, consensus negotiation where individual words are, are debated, deleted, added, inserted. Are, are there, and, and, you know, oftentimes civil society measures success of the outcome document based upon whether or not like certain words, certain concepts are, are embraced. Um, you know, is there like a word or a concept that you um, would expect to be embraced if this were to be a successful and like maximally ambitious outcome at CSW? Well, Mark, yeah, this is old hat for you. You know that in fact, they're going to debate every single word and every single term. I think it's hard to say. And, and here's why. Um, the realm of bodily autonomy and gender equality, what makes a family, what is gender identity? These things are already hotly debated by member states, even though we have international agreements and a general consensus on gender equality. Then you throw in, you know, this kind of hotly debated, um, uh, issue around climate justice. Who's going to be the most affected? Who's responsible for stopping it? And so, to be honest, I mean, I think this is going to be a bit of a wild ride um, to see where we go. Now, what do I want? I want all countries to come to the table and recommit to gender equality. And as part of that, I want them to recommit to the idea that the, the planet is, in fact, in peril. Our ability to live on this planet is in peril. The science is unclear. And that as we figure out what to do now, I want women at that table to determine uh, national contributions um, to limiting carbon. I want them at the table to decide on how we're going to deal with um, disaster and destruction from climate change. Who's going to be affected by that? How are we going to adapt? I want women at the table, but it's, I think it's going to be a wild ride, Mark. I don't, I'm not sure. I think a lot of us are unsure what to expect. I guess. And, and lastly, I mean, is there any sort of way that you see the crisis, the conflict in Ukraine impacting diplomacy around this outcome document. I mean, the, the CSW meeting co will come just, you know, a few weeks after this historic General Assembly vote in which, you know, 141, I think, countries went on the record uh, condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Will, I mean, does a vote like that have any impact on the diplomatic dynamics of negotiating a document on climate justice and, and gender? Well, sadly, no. I mean, I, in yeah. my, in I don't my think views, so either. I'm just curious. Yeah, to your yeah. Take, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that moment in the UN, by the way, was astound was astounding and glorious for me. I rewatched the, the calling of the vote several times because that's how it should happen. That's how it should happen. All those countries in one room, debating and discussing and voting that's how it should happen it just doesn't it takes it takes a war to get something like that to happen um gender equality never gets a moment like that even though certainly uh the fate of the world depends on it and it should 
Um, so no, I don't expect something like that. But what I do expect is that gender equality, like climate and like peace and security, it depends on the solidarity and willingness of all of us to confront those issues. These things are not just, you know, I, I kind of roll my eyes when people say women's issues, because usually what follows is things like health and childcare and reproductive health. Those are human issues, but so are climate change. So is and peace and security and um, economic growth and global health and pandemic preparedness. Those are all women's issues. I would love to see global solidarity around that idea. I mean, let's like, let's just be you know, blunt about it. Trying to achieve more peace and prosperity for the world without women's meaningful equality and inclusion is like trying to make guacamole without an avocado. I mean, it's impossible. And I want there to be more both awareness of that and I want more solidarity around that idea. Uh, well, Michelle, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Michelle Milford Morse. And we recorded our conversation live on Twitter Spaces, and she did take time to answer some questions for the audience. If you ever want to participate in one of these live recordings, please just follow me on Twitter. I host them regularly and often give audience the opportunity to ask questions. Nearly always do, unless there's a, some sort of time consideration. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.